Luke chapter 22, we're going to be starting, we're going to be starting in verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, excuse me, until you deny three times that you know me. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word, as we consider the way Satan has tempted these disciples in response to the announcement of the new covenant, to the death of your son, the tactics that he has used to try to destroy and defeat and divide the people of God, we pray that as we, as we look at this, as we consider your disciples' response to all of this, as we consider how Satan is on the attack, we pray that we, that we would be mindful of the fact that Satan continues to be at war with God's people, that he will use these same tactics with us, that he loves those whom Jesus, I mean, excuse me, he hates those whom Jesus loves, that he tries to destroy those whom Jesus saves, that he is radically opposed to all that Jesus is for. We ask that your spirit would move in our own hearts and minds to understand and rejoice in your word, to see your son as our hope, to give thanks for him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the beginning of the Bible, I mean right in the third chapter, there is a great war that's announced. If you are familiar with the Bible story, you know that in the first couple of chapters, we read about how God creates everything, including man. And not only does he create man, but he covenants with man to live in fellowship with him. And Satan comes to tempt man to reject God's rule, to not trust God's word, to turn from God's way. And Adam and Eve fall for the temptation to sin, and they take the fruit, which they were not supposed to take, and they eat it. And they are subsequently cursed. As God comes and curses them, he also comes and curses the serpent, Satan, the one who tempted them. And God promised to Satan as he cursed him that the seed of the woman would be at enmity with the seed of Satan and that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And at that moment, war was declared. 
it was the seed of the woman versus Satan and his seed. And we see that story being played out throughout Scripture. Satan tries over and over again throughout Scripture to thwart the seed of the woman, and he fails to do so over and over again. I want you to hear that. Satan seeks to destroy the purposes of God throughout Scripture by seeking to destroy the people of God. And when Jesus comes at his birth, the advent that we are beginning to celebrate even today, when he comes, he is announced to be the serpent-crushing seed of the woman for whom the world has been waiting. He is the one who has come to succeed where Adam and Israel and all men failed and to pay for all of our sins on the cross, thus defeating sin and death and Satan. And it is at the cross, the cross which Jesus announces as he institutes the Lord's Supper in verses 14 through 20, as he talks about this cup and this bread representing his body and his blood that will be shed on the cross to begin the new covenant for the forgiveness of their sins. It's as he announces that that we find out that the cross is where Jesus crushes the head of the serpent and puts him to open shame. Now now I want you to understand something because it seems to be that Satan knows this is coming. For early on in Jesus' ministry, Satan wanted to keep Jesus from his cross work. He wanted to tempt Jesus by promising him a kingdom without a cross. Look at Luke chapter 4. I want you to keep your hands in Luke 22 and go back to Luke chapter 4. Look at Luke chapter 4 and in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Now Satan tempts him in various ways, all ways in which Israel was also tempted, yet they failed and Jesus does not. But I want you to look down At verse 5, And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord God, and him only shall you serve. See, Satan wants to give him all the kingdoms of the world. Without a cross. And Jesus never falls for Satan's temptations. And we read this in verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. I want you to pay attention to that verse. It's important. Essentially, I want you to hear this. Essentially, Satan wanted Jesus to believe the false gospel, which is so prevalent today. The false gospel that's so prevalently proclaimed today is the same gospel that Satan wanted Jesus to believe. It's a gospel message which is really captured in a famous quote by Richard Niebuhr. You may have heard this quote before. Here's what he says. He says that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. But Jesus resisted this temptation. And as he did, we're given this incredibly important statement for which we're to keep our eyes posted. He departed from him, Satan departed from him until an opportune time. See, Jesus doesn't believe the message that Satan is peddling. But Satan is not ready to give up. He departs for him on this occasion, but he is looking for another opportunity when he can come after him. 
Satan is looking for an opportune time, and he knew at the Lord's Supper, as Jesus was, has come in for Passover week, as he begins to announce his death on the cross, as the chief priests and Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes are all looking to put Jesus to death, he knew that this was his opportunity. He knew that this was his chance. Satan would attempt to use this occasion, the arrest and trial and death of Jesus, to turn the disciples from Jesus. See, Satan can't stop Jesus, and he realizes that at this point, but he does believe he can take down his followers. And I want you to be clear about this and hear what I'm saying. Satan seeks to destroy the purposes of Jesus by seeking to destroy the people of Jesus. Satan hates what Jesus loves. And today we're going to see really in this passage three tactics that Satan employs to take down Jesus' disciples. Now I don't want you to think these are all the tactics that Satan employs because they're not. They're just the ones that we see in this passage today. And as we do so, I want you to grab hold of the fact that Satan employs the same tactics to take down Jesus' people today. There's nothing new under the sun. So what are the three tactics that Satan employs in this passage in order to try to destroy the people of God? Let's look at the first tactic of Satan. He tries to destroy us. Here it is. He tries to destroy us with covetousness. You hear that? Destroy us with covetousness. That's the first tactic we see here. Look at verse 21. Jesus has just announced the Lord's Supper. And then he says this. Verse 21, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. See, Judas Iscariot, we all know is the one who does it, he betrayed Jesus because he was greedy, covetous, and in love with this present world. Look, look at what it says about his greedy pursuit of the world's goods and pleasures in chapter 22 and verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred, that's Judas did, with the chief priests and officers, how he might betray him, that's Jesus, to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. Hear what Jesus or what Judas, I'm sorry, said he would give Jesus in exchange for? Money. He's greedy. Here's the difficulty with following the story in the Gospels, though, with Judas. Judas sure looked like the real deal, didn't he? I mean, certainly the disciples thought he was. My guess is he even thought he was. And the reason I know that they at least thought he was is according to verse 23, they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. They didn't automatically think to themselves, well, Judas is the betrayer. We all know that. But lest you think Judas went from being this sincere, devout follower of Jesus to, be, to a betrayer, I want to remind you that in the Gospel of John, in chapter 12, we are told by John that Judas had been in the practice of stealing money from their money purse. Judas may have believed he was devout in his following of Christ, but his life showed a different pattern. Judas's life showed that Judas had just been using Jesus all along. Judas was like the soil that Jesus talks about that produced thorns and thistles, right? As the seed of God's word hit the soil, it was choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. He was like the rich young ruler who was destroyed by covetousness. Look at Luke chapter 18. I want you to see that story briefly again and remind you of what happened there. Because this is what's happened in Judas's own life. Verse 18 of Luke 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Now, I want you to follow this. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He only gives him five commandments. Why? Why? There are two tables of the laws the Jews were aware of. Are you guys aware of that? Two tables. The first table had the first four commandments on it. You know what those are? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven graven images. In other words, idols. You don't worship me like the pagan peoples worship their gods. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And you shall keep the Sabbath holy. Those are all commands on the first table of the law directed toward our love for God. The second table of the law had the next six commandments directed toward our love for one another or for our neighbors. What were those? Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, and do not covet. What's interesting is that Jesus, as he says, you know the commandments, in verse 20, Jesus lists five of the six from the second table of the law. Why? Why does he leave off, do not covet? Look at verse 21, and he, that being the rich young ruler, said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. In other words, Jesus knew that at the root of it, the rich young ruler was covetous, that the rich young ruler was in such covetousness for wealth that he was in full-blown idolatry. Paul calls coveting idolatry. He worshipped the pleasures and wealth and riches and cares of this life above all else. And Jesus knew he was not willing to repent of that. And so he calls him on his idol. This is what Jesus does, right? He comes right after our idol and says, repent of that. You want to follow me? Repent of that. Here's what it is for you. And he identifies it pastorally in the life of this rich young ruler. Jesus, as the ultimate physician of the soul, knows what this man's primary idol is. And he comes right after it. He says, you want to follow me? Repent of that. Verse 23, but when he, that being the rich young ruler, heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easy, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. See, it's incredibly difficult for rich people to be saved. Because why? Because they're clinging to their wealth, the riches of this present world. It's not only incredibly difficult, it's impossible. And the disciples get that because in the disciples' minds, to be wealthy is to be blessed. And so if the wealthy can't be saved, then who can be saved? And look what they say. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. In other words, God can save whomever he wills. What we learn from the story of the rich young ruler from the life of Judas is that you can't love both money and God. You can't serve two masters, as Jesus says. You'll either hate the one and love the other. This is why we're warned in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 through 10, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's what the desire for wealth does. Now, I want you to hear this. You're not condemned because you're wealthy. You're condemned because you love your wealth. Rich people in the Bible get saved. But they repent of desire for their wealth. When I hear the story of Judas 
and his love for this present world, I also think of Demas. You guys know this other tragic story of Demas? Demas was a disciple of the Apostle Paul. He was a minister of the gospel alongside Paul. I'm sure that Demas looked like the real deal to everyone around him. He probably, like Judas, even thought he was the real deal. Yet at the end of Paul's life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we hear only this about Demas. Here's the final word on Demas in Scripture. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Let this be a warning to us, sovereign grace. We do not want to be those who, out of covetousness for a better life, use Jesus. We do not want to be those who come to him looking for him to offer us some kind of benefit in this present life. He may give some, but that's not why we come. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not come to Jesus and he'll help you clean up your mess. The gospel is not come to Jesus and he'll give you a good marriage or a good family or financial success or good health. Your main problem is not that you're unhappy or that you don't have enough benefits in this present world. Your main problem is that you are a creature who has rebelled against your creator and he is a holy God whose wrath burns white hot against your sin. His judgment is bearing down on you and you will pay eternally for your sins. Did you hear that? Your main problem is not the mess of your life. It is the wrath of God against you for your sins. Thus, because your main problem is not the mess of your life, the gospel is not primarily that Jesus makes your circumstances better here on earth. The gospel is that Jesus came to live the sinless life you did not, to pay the wrath of God against your sins on the cross, and to raise from the dead conquering sin and death. He did this to bring reconciliation between you and the Father. It is in Jesus' death on the cross that holy wrath and holy love kiss. The good news is that the Father loved you though you had sinned against him and he sent his Son to absorb the justice due only to you so that he might give you the reward due only to his Son. Sadly, Judas never looked to Jesus for this need. And many other professing Christians never looked to Jesus for this need because they are in the vein of 1 Timothy 6 following the false gospel of so many wolves who are enriching themselves by promising prosperity and blessing to God's people if they come to Christ. I want you to hear that because the prosperity gospel, the have your best life now gospel, is not new. It existed in the first century, and Paul rebukes it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. That false gospel is the gospel Judas was clinging to. It's the gospel that Demas was clinging to. It is not the gospel that the followers of Jesus are clinging to. And sadly, because Jesus never looked, or Judas never looked to Jesus for this need, because Judas never did, Judas received no good gospel promise. Look at Luke 22. And let's hear what Judas received. He did receive a gospel promise, if you will. It's just not a particularly positive or encouraging one. Look at Luke chapter 22 and 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but, now listen, woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. That woe there, that woe to him, is a prophetic way of announcing a curse. Blessed, 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 woe, woe, woe. Here are prophetic blessings. Here are prophetic curses. And what Jesus is doing is prophetically announcing a curse upon Judas. See, I warn you, if you've been using Jesus to clean up your mess, 
and prosper you rather than trusting in him to save you, then you've not been following Jesus. You've erected an idol for your covetous heart. You're treating Jesus the way pagans treat their idols. You are trying to manipulate him for things you want, not coming to him, your living Savior, to forgive you for your sins, to declare you righteous, to bring you into right relationship with God where you're reconciled with the Father through him. And if you're coming to Jesus in that way, the way Judas or Demas did, then I implore you to repent. I implore you to look to him, to Jesus, and be saved. Let the warning of the author that the author of Hebrews gave to the church be a warning that you heed. Here's what the author of Hebrews said in chapter 3. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. See, if you hear Christ calling you to repent and look to him for salvation, do not harden your hearts. Even if up till today you thought you were a believer and you found out this morning as I'm walking through these texts, the spirit unveiled in your heart that you never came to Jesus as your savior, but you came to him as someone you manipulate like an idol to get prosperity, to clean up your mess, but not to save you from the wrath of God. Because you have essentially believed the lie of Satan that basically God is is coming and sending Jesus to start this kingdom for men that have no sin, really. Therefore, there's no need for a cross work. You just come into the kingdom that way. Just by sort of looking to Jesus to clean up your mess for you. Get everything straightened out. If you're in that category and you hear the word today and you hear the Spirit telling you to repent, I I encourage you, do not harden your hearts to it. Repent and look to him and be saved. The second tactic of Satan So if the first one is to destroy us with covetousness, the second one is to divide us with pride. Hear that? To divide us with pride. Look at Luke 22 and verse 24, and I I want you to catch the imagery here. They've just been questioning one another as to which one of them is the betrayer. And in the same context, they immediately change the topic. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Well, I know I'm not going to be the betrayer, and I'm not going to be the betrayer. I'm not going to be the betrayer. Well, who's going to be the betrayer? Here's what I know. I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. Think of the ridiculousness of this. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines a table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines a table, but I am among you as the one who serves? See, it's passages like these that help me realize that the disciples are real men. You know why? They, they've just been disputing who betrayed Jesus, and now Satan tempts them, and they fall into the temptation to a completely different dispute over who's the greatest. That's in the midst of the fact that Jesus has just served them at the Lord's Supper. They're reclining at the table, and if we know the scene from John, Jesus has washed their feet as a servant of them. He has served the Lord's supper to them as a servant of them. And he has announced his humiliation and death on the cross as a servant of them. And in the midst of all of this, they begin to fight over who's going to be the greatest. They've just heard a warning about who will betray him. And they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest among them. 
And by the way, this is a topic the disciples have debated on more than one occasion. This is not the only place to debate this. They debate this in other places who will be the greatest. And Jesus tells them over and over again that they need to understand that they're servants. And they don't seem to get it. They have done so because of pride. See, and division caused by pride is one of Satan's most effective tactics, isn't it? If he can cause division through pride, he will. As Sinclair Ferguson, one of the pastor who I love, a theologian who I love to read and listen to, has said, Satan distracts us from Jesus. Did you hear this? Satan distracts us from Jesus and encourages our hearts to say, me first, rather than you first. It just takes one person, by the way, to, to say me first before all of our eyes are off Jesus and onto ourselves and our demands. You say, no, no, no. If that person says me first, all my, my eyes aren't off Jesus. I'm thinking to myself, how could they say me first? They're not even thinking about others like me. What? Wait, wait. I, I just got to me first, didn't I? My family loves to go to Disneyland. You guys have heard that before. And nearly every time we go, I witness something which illustrates how a me-first kind of mentality can take all of our eyes off of the right thing. You guys ever go there, you'll see it. It's like, a, it's like an experiment in, in, in social behavior, being at Disneyland, if you watch it. I, I see a family, every time that I'm in the park, it seems, I see a family who has a selfish child who goes into full meltdown. You guys know what this looks like, Right? The whole family has come to Disneyland to enjoy the magic of Disney, right? They have come into this world, and here they are in the midst of it, and they're having an incredibly delightful time, and the parents are spending thousands of dollars, and, and one kid doesn't get one thing they want and melts down, and the whole family's demeanor changes. They've all been, their, their whole trip has been ruined at this moment by this one child with a me-first mentality. None of them at that instant are thinking, what an incredible place Disneyland is. The mom is thinking, curse you husband for bringing us here. And the husband is thinking, why won't this child get, and it's a mess. And everybody's demeanor has changed and nobody is enjoying Disneyland anymore. This is the thing, th- same thing that happens in the church when we have a me-first kind of mentality. We all lose sight of Jesus. Just one person does it, and we all lose sight of Jesus, and we start to seek our own go- good. See, we won't lay down our preferences, our opinions, or our rights for the sake of others. This kind of me-first attitude causes disunity as it inevitably leads to gossip and slander and hard-heartedness toward each other. This kind of me-first attitude is the opposite of what Jesus modeled. Look at what he says in verse 26 and 27. He's talked about in verse 25 that the Gentiles exercise lordship. But look what he says in verse 26. But not so with you. See, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. See, for who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Well, clearly the one who's reclining at the table is the greater in the Gentile culture, even in the Jewish culture. The one who reclines at table is greater, but I am among you as the one who serves. See, Jesus grounds his command in his own example. Paul does the same thing in Philippians chapter 2. Turn there really quickly with me. Philippians chapter 2, I want you to see the same thing grounded there. In verse 1, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others 
more significant than yourselves. That's not a me-first attitude. That's a you-first attitude. Let each of you not look, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You see, Jesus, the one in glory, laid down, laid down the right to exercise his divine attributes and laid down his glory to become a servant, to become one of us, to even go to death on the cross. And he did so, he was humiliated, so that he might be exalted. And we, for some reason as believers, seem to keep missing that point over and over and over again. And we decide that to be the greatest means that it's me first, not you first. And Paul says we need to become like Jesus, who considered others more important than himself. I pray, Sovereign Grace, that we will be like Christ in this. See, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And we're united to Christ through faith. Our life is not our own. It belongs to him. And so we want to follow him and be what we are by fighting to have a you-first mentality. Before I leave this tactic of Satan, I want to point to the gospel hope that's in this passage. Look at Luke chapter 22 and verse 28. Because it stuns me what Jesus says next. Here are these disciples in the midst of this incredible scene in which Jesus is announcing his own humiliation and death and the new covenant who are disputing over which one of them would be greatest, completely missing the point. And Jesus does not pronounce a woe on them. He pronounces a gospel blessing. Look at what he says in verse 28. You were those who stayed with me in my trials. And I assigned to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. See, there's a gospel promise for them to sit on thrones in the kingdom. They will rule and reign with Christ. These men who are frail and weak and tempted to sin and who are often prideful and selfish These are men whom Christ saves, and I want you to catch this, whom he not only saves, but rewards. And Jesus makes similar promises to all who trust in him. Let's look at the third tactic of Satan. The third tactic of Satan is to defeat us with our own sense of self-sufficiency. See, he wants to divide us through our pride. He wants to destroy us through covetousness. He wants to defeat us with our own sense of self-sufficiency. Look at Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. Simon, Simon. Now, he's addressing Peter here. But he's using Peter's pre-Christian name that Jesus has given him. And he's really hearkening to that pre-Christian name as a foreboding of his denial of Christ. Because Peter's about to deny him. It's sort of a narrative move where Jesus is if you will, prophesying to some degree of what Peter will do. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Stop and think about that. Jesus is letting Peter know that Satan has essentially come to the throne room of God, if you will, and requested, demanded, to be able to attack him, to be able to defeat him, to be able to cause him to fail. What's amazing is that 
Satan wants to cause Peter to be a failure. He wants to take Peter down in weakness and get him to deny Jesus. And Jesus is essentially telling Peter that he's going to let him. Satan wants Peter to believe that he can stand on his own two feet. He wants him to trust in his own self-sufficiency so that, here's Satan's outcome, so that he feels hopeless when he fails. If I can just get Peter to try to think that he can stand on his own two feet, then when I get him to fail, he will become hopeless because he'll find out that he can't stand on his own two feet. And when he becomes hopeless, he'll just give up. But I, I want you to understand something about this temptation that the English text doesn't translate well. In verse 31, it says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. In both cases, that you is a plural, not a singular. In other words, Jesus is not talking just to Peter, but to all the disciples. Now, he's specifically addressing Peter. But he's warning all the disciples that Satan is coming for them to try and bring about the same kind of denial. See, Satan isn't just trying to take Pete down Peter. Satan wants to attack all of Jesus' disciples. He wants to attack all of them then, and he wants to attack all of them now. If Satan can just get you to fail, to fall into sin, to deny Christ with your words and your actions, to be unfaithful to Jesus while you're doing all that on the foundation of belief or trust in your own self-sufficiency, he believes he can wreck you. He can use sin and failure to bring you to quit. Jesus tells Peter, however, that he's praying for him. Look at the first part of verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It's interesting, Jesus, that becomes a singular you, by the way. Jesus tells Peter, I'm specifically praying for you. That your faith may not fail. He's interceding for Peter's faith. And Jesus is interceding for your faith as well, Christian. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. Because I want you to see Jesus' intercession for you. Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. This interesting question is asked. In light of the gospel, who is to condemn Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who is to condemn? Christ died. Christ was raised. Christ is interceding for us. Do you hear that? Satan wants to get you to fail, to suffer, to fall. And he wants to accuse you and tell you that you finally dealt the fatal blow to any hope you ever have of being in good stead with God. That's what he wants to do. If he can get you to erect your own hope on the foundation of your own self-sufficiency, and then he can knock you off of that foundation, now you feel hopeless. And he can come to you and say, you have no hope, you're a failure, you failed, look at you, you're a sinner, you might as well self-suicide now. He wants to accuse you. He wants you to believe that you have finally dealt the fatal blow. You can no longer be saved. He wants to get your eyes off of Jesus and onto yourself so he can condemn you. But who is he to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one and nothing. But sadly, Satan often uses this tactic with more success than we wish he would. See, because Peter erects a foundation of self-sufficiency as Satan tempts him to. Look at verse 33 of Luke 22. Peter said to him, See, notice, Jesus just said, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus is actively praying for him, and Peter responds to him, saying what? Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. In other words, I'm good. I'm golden. I've got this. No need to pray, about, no need to pray for me that Satan will sift me like wheat. 
because I will stand. I will go with you both to prison and to death. I have got this one, Jesus. Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. See, even though Jesus tells him that he's praying for him for just this reason, Peter doesn't really hear Jesus. And he doesn't really hear Jesus because he doesn't really know himself. See, he convinces himself that he's strong and doesn't need Jesus' prayers to stand against the scheme of Satan. He believes he's self-sufficient. He can do this thing. He isn't weak enough to need Jesus to hold on to him, but Jesus assures him he is weak. And he does need to be held on to. More than that, Jesus makes another gospel promise to Peter. Look again at verse 32 because you sometimes just read right over this verse and not pay attention to how glorious this is. Satan is seeking to sift you like wheat. He's demanded to have you. And look what he says, verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now notice Jesus tells him that his prayer is answered. Look what he says. And when you have turned again. Hear that? Jesus, I've been praying for you, Peter. And when you have turned again, in other words, whatever I ask of my father, because I'm the son, he grants to me. And he's going to grant to me that you will turn again. I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you have turned again. Do you hear that promise? Jesus' prayer for Peter won't fail. Peter will turn again. Peter will be forgiven for his denials. Even though Peter is about to hit bottom in denying Christ, Jesus is interceding for him, and the Father will never fail to answer Jesus' prayer, and no one can separate Peter from the love of God in Christ. The Lord will cause Peter to turn again, and that is good news for all of us. How we need to hear of this great love God has for us in Christ. His love is inviolable, unbreakable, too powerful for Satan's greatest tactics. For we have a living Savior who's ever interceding for us. And no one and nothing can separate us from his love. In the case of Peter, Jesus promises to restore him and even to make him into a pastor of others. Look what he says. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In the Gospel of John, Jesus comes to Peter after the resurrection and tells him three times to feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. This is how the brothers are strengthened. When he says, strengthen your brothers, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers, how does he do it? He does it by feeding the sheep so that they can, so they're strengthened to endure the tactics of Satan. They're strengthened by being fed the word and by prayer. We are Christ's and Satan hates us because he hates Christ. Thus he's at war with us, which is why it's Peter's primary job to strengthen the brothers by feeding them the word and praying for them. That's also why it's our job as believers to speak the word to one another and to pray for one another so we are strong enough to stand. Because Satan is on the attack and these are just a few of his tactics. Just a few. He wants to tempt you to wander from Jesus because of your love for this present world. He wants to bring about division through our selfish and prideful me-first attitude. He wants to get us to trust on our own strength and our own self-sufficiency and then trip us up to cause us to want to quit. Our only hope against Satan's tactics is Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his current intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. That is why we sing the following. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. 
when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your son. We are mindful of the tactics of our enemy to turn our eyes from him. To cause us to be destroyed by our own covetousness, covetousness, our own love for this present world. To distract our gaze from Jesus and to cause division among us because of our own pride, our own selfishness, our own me-first attitude. To attempt to defeat us by encouraging us to erect a foundation of our own self-sufficiency and then to knock us off of it and so bring us to want to quit. In all of these things, Satan has one end. That is to get our eyes off of Jesus and onto ourselves. We pray, Father, that you would keep our eyes ever fixed on your Son, who is our hope, who is our salvation, who is our righteousness and justification. We pray that you would hold tight to us. And we are incredibly thankful and mindful of the fact that you know we are weak and helpless apart from you. And that your son is at your right hand. Even now, Jesus is there praying for us. Oh, how we need him to pray for us, to intercede for us. And we are so incredibly thankful that he is. We pray that we would not lose sight of him. We trust in him and him alone. In Jesus' name, amen.